go ahead and have a seat. Let me just say one more time, good morning, and welcome to those who might just be joining us online as well. It's, uh, you know, I just, week after week, just a joy to be here with you to open the Word, but we are thrilled to have all of you with us at this gathering of Hope Bible Fellowship. If you got your Bibles, I want to go ahead and invite you to open to Hebrews chapter 2, where we're going to be at today. Hebrews chapter 2. Now, last week, if you were here, or maybe you listened back if you missed out, um, I said that what I was going to be doing was talking about the ministries of Jesus, and I mentioned that I got to study in the passage, and it ended up getting bigger and bigger and longer and longer, and so I split it into two. And so last week was part one, uh, and then today we're going to dive into verses 14 through 18 in Hebrews chapter 2 for part two of this uh, sort of little mini-series within Hebrews, The Ministries of Jesus. And this is a focus on what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection for us. Now, if you'll recall, last week we talked about the saving ministry of Jesus and the sanctifying ministry of Jesus. And I talked about the family traits of the family of God and that that main family trait is holiness. And that when we're adopted into the family of God, we have Jesus as our perfect elder brother and we are sanctified by him, by Jesus. And he makes us more and more like him the longer and longer that we follow him. We should be continually growing in holiness. Now today in verses 14 through 18, we see Jesus's humanity and suffering. And we see his identifying with us and living, uh, living life facing the same things that we do. And it's just another reminder of the main theme of the book of Hebrews, which we've said, which is what we titled the whole series, right? Jesus is better. So many times we go through life and we face hardships or we face hard choices, we face distractions from our main task, we face family and friends letting us down or maybe outright betraying us. We face heavy temptations, and the more we resist those temptations, it seems like the pressure on us gets to be more and more intense. Have you ever thought, have you ever had this thought, that surely, surely no one understands what you are going through? Surely no one understands your life. Like, we all revert to being a whiny teenager at some point, right? <laughs> you don't understand. Nobody understands. Nobody knows what this feels like. <laughs> to, nobody's been in my shoes. Nobody knows exactly what I'm feeling right now. Maybe that was just me as a teenager. But we do that. Have you ever, have you ever thought that? The truth is that none of us can truly ever say that no one understands our life. I mean, we could say it, but it wouldn't be true, right? Jesus understands your life. He knows where you're at because he's faced the suffering and the pain of human existence. And my intention is that uh, today you will see in the Word of God that very thing. So let's begin by reading from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, 
He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to help us understand. God, as we come... I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths of your word, the sanctifying truth of your word, the the fact that, God, you grow us in holiness through your word. I thank you that uh, you understand what it's like to to go through life as a human. I pray you'd help me be clear as I explain the the meaning here and the application to our lives. Help Help our hearts understand. God, we need you to help us. Holy Spirit, we need you to speak to us. We need you to move in our hearts to to illuminate uh, the eyes of our heart to see these things, Jesus, and to believe. Help us repent where we've sinned and walk fearlessly with you, Jesus. Please increase here. Let me decrease. You increase. Be big here, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. So many of the heresies in the early church that, uh, heresies that the early church confronted, okay? Because when the church started out, it wasn't very long before they were confronted with some false teaching, right? Some, some heresy that was, that was right there trying to wiggle its way in. And most of those, or many of the heresies that they had to confront early on in the early church had to deal with the person of Jesus Christ. So there was a group called the Arians, okay? It's a little bit of church history, just a very little bit here for you. But there was a group called the Arians, and they held that however great Jesus was, that he was still less than Almighty God. So that was the Arians, okay? We could say that's, that's heretical, that's bad, right? But then there was this group called the Docetists, all right? And they believed that Jesus appeared as a man, but was not. He just seemed like he was a man, just seemed like he was human, okay? So that also is heresy. That's, that's heretical. That's not right. And so the first, there was this, what we call the first church council of Nicaea, where these church folks got together and they dealt with heresies. They dealt with these things, and that was where Arianism was named a heresy. And basically what they did is they got together at the first council of Nicaea, and they affirmed that Jesus was fully divine, fully God, and fully man. Okay, so you hear me say that as 100% man, 100% God, or 100% God, 100% man. And so that, it, that came from them getting together. They were doing this council of Nicaea and combating these heresies. So it's really important that we understand what the Bible has to say about the person of Jesus, because I want to tell you, um, these heresies didn't just go away, right? It wasn't like they called them and said, that's wrong, and those things just ceased to exist, right? We see them popping up even today. You'll hear people, um, and and you'll hear people teach something, and it sounds kind of good, but then we notice that, okay, they're not right in the person of Jesus. It's very important that we get a proper and have, hold a proper understanding of who Jesus was. Jesus was fully God. 
Point number one here out of this text that we want to make this morning, that we want to understand, is that Jesus is really human. That Jesus is really human. I think I said last week or the week before that um, back then, the problem was, was, uh, was getting them to understand, uh, getting them to understand that he was God. But our problem now is getting people to understand that he was also human. Jesus really being human means this. It means that he was capable of being our high priest. So the author of Hebrews talks about this high priest, Jesus, as being our high priest. Later on in the book, he's going to get more into it, okay? But there's elements of it even here towards the beginning, And what does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? Well, before we get there, we need to look at a little bit, just a little bit, at the Old Testament sacrificial system. So if you remember in the Old Testament, God had laid out the the different rules for sacrifices for sin and the different rituals that the high priest would have to go through for sin. Now, the Old Testament sacrificial system had two um, we'll call them problems, okay? Two problems or two things that made it insufficient, okay? The first one was this. The sacrifices had to continually be made, okay? It's like one animal was killed, and then guess what? There was more sin, and so another animal would have to be killed, and then you just keep having to time after time. Be, it was a bloody mess, literally a bloody mess, Right? Uh, when you go through and you read in the Old Testament the lists of the different animals and how much how they were supposed to be killed and for what and when then when and where and how they were supposed to be offered, the sacrifices had to be made over and over again. There was not at that time a sufficient sacrifice that could be done once and for all. Boom, it's covered. And so that was a flaw or a problem, an issue with the Old Testament sacrificial system. Why? Uh, that wasn't good enough to keep going on because you'd have to continually offer sacrifices. The second flaw with it or, or problem with it is that, and, and please understand, um, God set it up this way on purpose to foreshadow Jesus. So it's not, a, uh, it's not a flaw like you're thinking of a flaw. I'm not saying God did something wrong. Okay, don't hear me say that. But a problem of why there had to be a more sufficient sacrifice was because that wasn't enough. The second reason or second sort of issue why Jesus had to be our high priest is because in the Old Testament sacrificial system, you had a high priest, but the high priest came and went. So they would die eventually, and then a new high priest would have to uh, be appointed and step into the role. But we needed a high priest who could continually, nonstop, advocate for us before the Father. So not only did we need a once and for all sacrifice for all our sin, but we needed a once and for all high priest advocating for us before the Father who would never go away. There would never be someone else who would have to step into the role because he was the ultimate perfect high priest. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, can understand us and intercede perfectly for us because He became one of us because he became one of us. In verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook 
of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, there's two kind of core theological truths we need to understand here. One, Jesus is human in every way. Jesus is a real human in every way. Okay? It wasn't like Jesus just appeared to be human. It wasn't that he was just partially human. Jesus was 100% human, okay? Also 100% God, but Jesus was real human in every way, save for the fact that he had no sin. He did not have a sin nature, but he was a real human in every way. And secondly, he had to become human in order to represent humans on the cross, because the brothers and sisters, the, the children share in flesh and blood. Humans, we share in flesh and blood. The one who had to come and die for us needed to be one of us, needed to share in flesh and blood. If you look down at verse 16, it says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. See, Jesus set out on a plan to save you and me, and he was doing it for humanity, so he became human. He was not doing it for angels. This kind of harkens back to what we heard a few weeks ago where the author of Hebrews lays out his argument as to why Jesus is superior to angels, right? And we talked about, there's a verse in Scripture that talks about us eventually judging angels, right? And, and it, it shows, again, this, this idea that yeah, the angels are servants of God. They're messengers of God. But Jesus didn't come to save angels. He came to save humans. He came to save flesh and blood. So he became flesh and blood. He wrapped himself in human flesh. He became human so that he could die as a human for humans for us. When I read that sentence that I wrote, it makes me think of uh, that scene in Elf uh, with the little girl in the, in, in, and Will Ferrell in his elf costume sitting there, and he got his finger pricked at the doctor. He's got the cotton ball, and she, he says, I'm an elf raised by, or I'm a human raised by elves. And she says, I'm a human raised by humans, right? I don't know why. It, doesn't, uh, it just made me think of that. That's, that's my, my, my brain going down a rabbit trail there, because then he eats the cotton ball, <laughs> which just sounds gross to me. But anyway, Jesus became human so he could die as a human for humans. Now, this is not the type of high priest that the first century Jew would have expected to come along. All right, if you go back and read about the role of high priest and what they wore and the rituals that they carried out, you can see that the Jews would have been expecting something more akin to a Pharisee or teacher of the, religi of the religious law and not a suffering servant who became a human to ultimately die, and not sacrifice an animal for human sin, but would himself become the perfect sacrifice for sin. The reason why Jesus came as a human is explained in verses 14 and 15. And this is what we call the subduing ministry of Jesus. He conquered death. He subdued death. He conquered it. When it says that Satan has the power of death, so, so look, at, look at verse 14, because I want to point this out here. Um, about partway through, it says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, when the author of Hebrews writes that Satan has the power of death, 
the author is not meaning that he has the ultimate power of death. Okay, as Michael Kruger writes, Satan has the power of death in the sense that he influences the thing that causes death. That thing is sin. Death is the result of sin. Sin is rebellion against God, and the penalty for sin is death. And Jesus died to bear that sin, defeating death and the devil, our enemy. Isaiah 53, 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I want you to hold on to that. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So there we see him interceding for us on our behalf as our perfect high priest. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, there we have his bearing the sins of many in his defeat of death and the devil, uh, it says, uh, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then again in 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So by Jesus' death, he defeated the devil and the power of death. And the Bible says that we were, we were held captive to it. That we lived in the fear of death. And that fear of death kept us living like slaves to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-26 says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's a key point for you. If you know that death has no power over you, then you can live fearlessly for Christ. If you know that death has no power over you, that you can live a real Christian life fearlessly for Christ. My friend Jim Reynolds, I've quoted him before to you guys, he says, I'm invincible till God's done with me. Nothing can touch me till God's done with me. But do we live our lives that way? I think too often we live like we're still afraid of death. So Jesus defeated death. Actually, that's the first of what Jesus' death really did. Two important things that, that we see in this passage that I want to talk about. The first one is he defeated death. He defeated death and the devil. And the second, it gets to in verse 17... And that is that it satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God. If you look at verse 17, it says, Therefore, 
he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, that's a big word, propitiation. It's kind of fun to say. I bet that's a word you use all the time at home. Propitiation, right? Probably not. But I'm going to explain it to you, and then you're going to know a fun word to impress people at parties. I'm just kidding. Propitiation is a specific word for a wrath-removing sacrifice. A wrath-removing sacrifice. It means that Jesus' death satisfies the wrath of God against sin. Jesus' death satisfies the wrath of God against sin. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. As one author mentioned, Jesus became like a sponge soaking up the wrath of God rightfully due to sinners like you and me. He was a propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God do us. Please understand, God, God is angry at sin. Okay? God is angry at sin. Anybody who says otherwise doesn't understand the teaching in the Bible. God is angry at sin. Kruger writes, God is right to be angry at sin. If you are in Christ, you don't need to fear that anger because there is no anger left for you. You have God's favor resting on you now and need not be afraid. See, sin is rebellion against God. And God is angry at sin. And and God's righteous judgment and God's love for us are not at odds with each other, but they work together in concert. Because God is just and holy, he must pour out wrath on sin. Yeah, he's angry at that sin. It has to be poured out on someone. And so he made a way because of love... He made a way by sending Jesus to be that propitiation, that sacrifice that soaked up the wrath of God due to us rightfully. His anger at our sin, his wrath and judgment on our sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross and Jesus became that propitiation, that sponge soaking up the wrath of God meant for you and me. And so if you are in Christ, you don't have to be afraid that God's angry at you. That's great news. You don't have to walk around being scared that God's mad at me. Because if you're in Christ, all of that was poured out on Jesus. God's not angry at you if you're in Christ. He's angry at sin. He's angry at sin. But if you're in Christ, that was poured out on Jesus. Do you see why it's so important for us to understand the depth of that sacrifice, the depth of the good news of the gospel, because it directly affects how we live our life, because a lot of us, we walk around thinking, oh man, God's mad at me, I made God mad, God, please don't be mad, I'm sorry I did, or or maybe we would never say that out loud, but we have a picture of God that he's standing over the trapdoor entrance to heaven with a baseball bat, and as soon as we try to pop it open, he's going to hit us on the head with it. God's not playing whack-a-mole. That's not how any of this works.
Those in Christ don't need to be afraid. Jesus is a real human being who died a real death, was raised in a real resurrection, and this means he accomplished all of this for you to remove the wrath of God from those who believe. And it's good news. It's good news. In Christ, we're set free. The wrath of God is satisfied. Because of this, we can live without fear of death. The scripture speaks of us living in slavery, but now we are set free. When I was in, um, when I was in college, I was in a group called uh, the New Edition. Not that New Edition, if you know the other one. Okay, I was not in the one with Bobby Brown, okay? Um, though that brings up lots of really funny thoughts, okay? Um, I was in a group called New Edition. We were a repertory theater group um, from the college, and we would go to different churches, and we would do sketches and different things. And this is back in the day, so this is many years ago, when they did these things called musical interpretations, uh, where there would be music playing, a song playing, and some then people would act them out, right? Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and there was this one that we did called He Holds the Keys, and it was based on this old... Um, Keith Green song, I think, or Steve Green, anyway, old song. And um, I just remember we had to act like we were in chains, right? That was part of it. And then there was a Jesus character, and then he would grab the keys to death in the grave, right? And kind of symbolically, right? And then there was this moment where we were set free, and it was like that. And I just remember, I know it was just, we were just acting or whatever, but it was that picture of being set free. And the picture here is that we're set free from living our lives in fear of death, Because Jesus came as a real human, like you and me. Number two, Jesus really suffered. So Jesus was really human, and Jesus really suffered. We see this in verses 16 through 18. Think of this. You know, I said the first, I said we had the subduing ministry of Jesus. Think of this as the sympathizing ministry of Jesus. It wasn't just that he was a human. It was that he lived among us and experienced the worst of what we experience. And he did all of that without sin. The reason Jesus is an effective high priest is because he can relate to you and me. Jesus can relate to us. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he suffered, because he was tempted as we are, he can sympathize with us. He can understand what we're going through. Verse, uh, look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So he's not identifying with angels here. He's not offering help to angels. He's offering help to us. He came and lived and dwelt among us and understands and suffered as a human. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So I guess the question is, when we look at Jesus' suffering, when we look at Jesus' temptation, we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. The question is, is he really able to understand my life? This says he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
because he suffered when tempted. You know, have you ever gone through temptation and maybe you're being tempted in some way and you resist it? And the pressure, I mentioned this earlier, the pressure just kind of builds. Jesus never gave in to that temptation. Now, you know what happens. You're tempted to sin, and there's this building of pressure, and then you give in to it at some point, sometimes. You give in to it, right? And that pressure's released because you've given in to it. And you repent, you move away from it, and then maybe temptation comes in some other area, right? And it builds and builds and builds. Jesus never experienced that release, that that momentary release of that temptation by giving in because he never gave in to it. So he just had the mounting pressure, that suffering of being tempted, mounting upon him over the course of his whole life. And never gave in. So Jesus really suffered under temptation 